Hello, and welcome to the Cinemondo Podcast with Kathy, Mark, and Burke, talking about movies, horror, sci-fi, unusual, unknown, forgotten, documentary, underappreciated, always interesting. Hey, guys. We're, again, once again, we're not in the same room with each other. We're doing this all remotely. Part of our quarantine series. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about the the uh, doing this remotely? What's your... What's your well, you te- technically, it's a little bit more difficult because yeah. it's so easy when we can just plug our mics in and, and do it. But now we have to get over the phone and I have to change inputs and outputs. And we just spent like 10 hours trying to figure out how to make it record correctly. <laughs> But I Burke, don't Burke, you're the one that has most of those headaches. For Kathy and I, it's just you know, setting up the mic and trying to look as good as we can. I thought it was super easy, so. but I'm not looking good. Well, well this, it's, <laughs> it's easy. I mean, this the kind of hook, hooking this thing up properly is easy for people who are smarter than me. But I'm sitting here going, okay, what, what? But anyway, we got it working, and uh, we're we're each in our respective homes. And we're thrilled to do it because uh, we miss podcasting. So we, you know, the, no no virus is going to keep us from our appointed rounds. That's right. None of us have it. Well, yeah. Well, knock on Formica. Yeah. Yet. No, no, no one has it yet. But I mean, I haven't left the house in weeks. I don't care. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope that like all of our listeners home. are staying at home and not listening to the nutty conspiracy people and yeah. and just listening to the scientists. Listen to the smart people. Like, what did Mr. Rogers say? Go to the helpers, you know, the people who are trying to help. Get away exactly. from the people who are trying to make money. <laughs> I think when you're trying, well, they all, see, the thing is that, that some people try and make it sound like scientists just want to make money, which right. is hilarious. But right. I think you just go where the intelligence is, and yeah. everybody knows scientists are smart. It's not fair to pretend like they're all out to get, like, some kind of donation. It's, like, ridiculous. So it's like, if the, you have to decide between a politician or a smart person... Please go to the smart person. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's our only advice. I'm just saying. Because there, there aren't too many smart politicians. <laughs> <laughs> there's not. And, you know, there's smart politicians, but they're not scientists. You know, there's levels. Yeah. And the, and yeah. the smart, so, the smart yeah. politicians are the ones that we keep hearing. They say, don't listen to me. Listen to the scientists. That's what the smart politicians say. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but if we can, you know, if you can keep doing your, hopefully you can still work. I mean, if you can't work and there are millions that aren't that, um, you know, you're, 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 uh, being safe at home with your, yeah. with yourself and not doing silly stuff. Just yeah. Don't be, silly. be smart, please. But be a, a lot of people are watching their televisions and they're streaming and they're watching their, Us they're included. Yeah. They're digging even, I've, I've talked to some friends. They're like, "Wow, I've gone back into my DVD collection, and I found DVDs I didn't realize I had." <laughs> DVDs. I know. I don't Isn't that funny? To play a DVD on right now. But you know what I mean. Even it's like I people are so them, desperate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we brought out uh, the Stranger Things version of Monopoly last week and played that. <laughs> oh, that's <funny>. nice. We're doing <laughs> so, board games around here yeah. too. But we're not playing yeah, Pandemic. So, we're for some reason we're avoiding playing Pandemic. We're playing other games. That doesn't sound fun. That yeah. doesn't sound fun. No, that sounds too real. But what but if you know, one you... thing I like to do? I like to catch up. I'm I'm a t- total true crime fanatic. Mm. I like you to listen to true crime that. podcasts. I love watching Discovery IDs, um, crime shows. Some are better than others. <laughs> it's like I really miss Joe Kenda. Um, but. Uh, 
I like to uh, listen to podcasts. So I, I really like um, stuff like Sword and Scale and Case File. So there's there's a new kind of new true crime podcast. I think they're on their second season called Murder Squad. It's Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. Paul oh. Holes is that cold case investigator. He's a retired detective who actually uh, figured out how to catch the Golden State Killer right. um, by using DNA. That was his idea, which is very cool. Um, and he worked with uh, Michelle McNamara, who wrote the book right. and actually coined the phrase Golden State Killer. And then Billy Jensen has written a lot of crime articles. He's a, um, a reporter, a journalist on true crime, and he's written about – he helped finish the book because Michelle McNamara died before it was finished. Mm. Right. Sad. Yes. Um, yeah. And so he helped finish the book because he was working with her on it. So it's sort of a kind of family. <laughs> right. Yeah. But so those two guys um, kind of got a leg up from my favorite murder, which is a huge podcast. It's more humor crime. Mm. They were huge fans of Paul Holtz because he's a, he's a very esteemed person in true crime you know, circles right now because of how he saw the case. <clears throat> so they, they started their own podcasting network and they, they are on their network. So murder squad is, is really good because it's about either cold cases or cases where there could be more victims. So mm-hmm. they're trying to advocate for more, you know, people to get more involved on the outside. It's not just, they're going to tell you how it began and ended. They're going to ask for your help. Right. So they oh, have a lot a, of things. That's yeah. really smart. It's very know, cool. Right? Yeah, so they have like pictures on the site of like victims that haven't been identified. They're asking for people's help on the identifying victims of, you know, people who might have been caught, but they haven't really, you know, necessarily recovered all the victims. Right. So what was interesting about that is there is a new, there's a new show coming on Discovery ID called The West Memphis Three uh, Murder Mystery. Um, yes. And that, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> that is something that Burke and I <laughs> appeared on because we, has some involvement in the West Memphis three case, which we'll go into pretty soon in a moment. Um, so they interviewed us for this documentary and then uh, the murder squad wanted to have us on to talk about the um, special. So, and the case. So they like the idea of the uh, advocacy that right. they're also, you know, getting the public interested and, you know, having, you know, people advocate for the, you know, the men in jail who were innocent and stuff like that. So that's where we are with that. So, and to um, sort of you, advocate you, for the victims, you know, these the, the case is still unsolved. It's an unsolved case. That's why it's perfect for Murder Squad, because yeah. it's considered an unsolved cold case. Um, and it's a very and, cold you know, case, because it happened in 1993. And the police aren't even investigating it. No, they, nev- they never did, actually. From, from no. the point when, the, when they found the bodies of the victims, they did not investigate. Right. So thank God Joe Bollinger and Bruce Noski came along because that brought that kind of awareness of this case to a huge worldwide audience. Yeah. Yeah. That was that first, that film uh, paradise lost, which was first aired on HBO, or at least that's when I first saw it back in, I think 1994, right. It came out a year later after the, um, the murders. And so I watched it and I was just blown away by it. It's, it's, it's really kind of a landmark documentary. These people would have gotten away with murdering me if it would not have been for what you guys did. Jessimus Kelly told police he watched 18-year-old Damian Eccles and 16-year-old Jason Baldwin brutalize the children as part of a cult ritual. I was saying what the police wanted me to say. They were led to believe by the police that we'd done it, but they didn't have anything to do with it. 
our understanding of what actually happened has changed. The spacing and the configuration of those injuries is not compatible with any knife. How did you get on this jury? And he basically said, dumb judges and dumb lawyers. The person responsible for this crime knew these victims. Would a reasonable juror convict these people today? The answer to that is no. This is more evidence and facts than against the West Memphis Three or me or anyone else. I believe in justice, and I believe it was served. I told the truth that I'm innocent, but just say I'm guilty and let me go. That's not justice. This has been going on for over 18 years, and it's, it's been an absolute living hell. It just kicks you in the head. It, it's a, it's a documentary that just kicks you in the head, and it leaves you with so many questions, and it, the ending of it is so awful to see. It's awful to see this thing happen in this documentary. Well, what's interesting is I watched it, and I said, wow, and then I, I sort of went on with my life. But both both of you didn't do that. You watched it, and then you said... Hmm, I've got to do, I just can't just sit around and let this sort of just be a, something I watched and then go on with my life. You actually did something about it. Well, you know, it wasn't even, uh, so So we'll start from the beginning. Um, so Paradise Lost, The Child Murders of Robin Hood Hills. It's an HBO documentary. It was, uh, it was done as part of a series that HBO used to have, true crime series called America Undercover. Uh, this was before America, you know, true crime stuff was a thing at all. This is, you know, it was a documentary about a crime, but this, it's a whole other world right now with true crime. Um, so I worked at an agency doing movie posters and they needed some advertising for HBO. They needed their key art for this documentary. So I watched it. And when we'll go into why, but it's like you, you can't just walk away from this movie exactly because. It's so haunting and it's so disturbing because they had so much incredible access that you you feel like you're part of it. So when it's over, you feel like I can't just sit here and say anything. <laughs> so I start talking to Burke about it. I was talking to our friend Grove about it and our other friend Lisa Fancher, and we're all you know we all just thought, well, let's try and do something, you know. And so it starts a small thing like flyers and movie theaters. Um, we just wanted to have a little protest in our way. That's pretty much where we began and thought it would end because it really wasn't internet. <laughs> I yet. started, I remember starting to think that this seemed so familiar to me. I really understood this story. It, a lot of times you see documentaries about crime or, you know, you read a, a true crime book or whatever, and you feel like those are, those are people who's, Motives I don't understand. I don't, you know, that's out of my realm, you know. But this one I felt like was right in my realm. I understood what these police were doing to these people. I knew what was happening here. I knew what was, I knew the the scapegoating and the, the language they were using to accuse these teenagers. I, I recognized it. I've heard it before. Mm-hmm. I've heard people. Was that because you sort of lived that a little bit? I mean, coming yeah, from. I grew up in the from, South. Coming from the South, this, and this, these murders happened in Arkansas. Um so anyway, go ahead. Uh, so I, I guess you, there's a lot of empathy there for what you know what happened in this. Yeah, case I got accused of being a devil worshiper, and you know if there had been bodies found near where I went to school or something, 
I imagine I would have been a suspect because I used to draw pictures of monsters and people with swords and, you know, and yeah, comic books. I loved comic books and I used to read these. I remember bringing the one Dark Shadows comic book that I had. It was a comic book of Dark Shadows. <laughs> And it had a, a, it had this demon on the cover with an inverted pentagram in his chest, and it was, you know, the comic book was a little different than the TV show, but, but um, you know, that got taken away and ripped up, and you know, and copies of Famous Monsters of Filmland, you know, <laughs> I, those were used as evidence against me, you know. <laughs> But in the Paradise Lost story, in the in the um, documentaries, you really see that kind of stuff happening to these teenagers, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, who are basically just, you know, teenagers that that don't even seem all that weird now. But in 1993, in little West Memphis, Arkansas, they were probably, you know, they probably got double people doing double takes, like, whoa, look at him. he's He looks like a heavy metal kid, you know? But they're not, I mean, you know, we look at those kids and we're like, I see those kids everywhere. I mean, in 1993, there's tons of kids wearing Slayer t-shirts with black hair and, you know, long hair. And But they got targeted because they were unusual. So I just, my, my thing was at the end of the film, the end of the first film had such a, an unsatisfying ending for me that they got, I mean, they get convicted at the end. You know, spoiler, they, the, the, they get convicted and put in prison. And I was like, wait a minute, what? They got, on that evidence, on just the prosecutor saying that they were conducting a a satanic ritual human sacrifice behind the car wash in West Memphis, Arkansas, that's why they got convicted? So I thought, you know what, the jury, I, I, I have to give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, and I have to think that these filmmakers neglected to show us something in the film, and I thought the film was unfinished. I thought, I thought Joe and Bruce had had biased it a little bit by not showing us the evidence that was that, that convinced the jury. So my thing was, I really wanted to find out what that evidence was. What did the jury see that we didn't see in the documentary? So I started calling attorneys, and I was calling the guys in prison and trying to get in touch with everybody I could. We ended up, uh, you know, me, Kathy, and Grove ended up flying out there to visit some of these people. We met with one of the investigators. Remember Glory Shettles, who met with us mm-hmm. at a little restaurant? And she's, I, you know, she was reaching for something in her purse, and I saw she had a pistol in, a, in, a, in there, in a little holster. You know, she was serious and uh, investigator, and she, you know, we expected people to be against us, but just about everybody we talked to out there who was involved in the case said, you know, those boys were railroaded. They were innocent, and they got convicted by a unfair process. Right. And, you know, you you see this case, and and a lot of it, because, you know, Burke and I both lived in the South, and Mark also. That's right, you lived in the South. We all met there. Anyway. Yep. Um, I know. But um, because of that, I feel like you could see the bias against anyone who wasn't just a good Christian. You were seeing the confusion they were, they were sowing between, like, Wicca and Satanism, and that basically anything that's not Christian was considered satanic. And even though there's been real no proof of any of these satanic ritual sacrifice you know things ever happening they still tried to sell us to the jury and it worked because people were confused by Damien who said he was a Wiccan to that equating them that to being a Satanist automatically so yeah. immediately the jury's like well he admitted he was a Satanist like no he didn't <laughs> so 
He so basically that was re- made, he made the mistake, you know, it's not really a mistake, but in that case, it was a mistake where he admitted that he wasn't a Christian, and that just, yeah. everybody was appalled. You know, you, the, the right. reaction from people was like, well, like you just said, you know, therefore, if you're not with us, you must be against us. If, you're, if you don't have a, a cross that's right side up, then you must have one that's upside down. If you don't love, think... if you don't love Jesus, you must hate Jesus. You know, it's that kind of thinking. It's binary, also, and and yeah. What also sets this documentary apart is this happened live on the ground while they were shooting it. A lot of stuff I think people are used to seeing these true crime shows happen after the fact, and these guys go back and they're interviewing people after it happened, and then they reenact what happened. These filmmakers went to the scene as the trials were unfolding, and they talked to people while it was happening. So there was no reenactments. There was no you know, asking people to think back when this happened, it was like happening live while they shot it. And they went down there assuming they were guilty. They wanted to do a film about disenfranchised youth and how it leads to violence in society. And, you know, but when they got there, they also realized as they were talking to people and interviewing people that, that something was definitely wrong with this case. So it turned into this. Now, I think that that, um, that approach to the filmmaking kept it very ambiguous, especially in the beginning. You know, I think um, that was very smart of them. They they didn't embellish it too much. It was all very like whatever was happening on the ground was happening. Yeah. So it, as opposed to a lot of films, they go back um, and even other projects about this case is that all of that has happened after all of it was done and over. That's what meant, sets these films apart is all of these films were done as the case is happening and unfolding. Right. And I think also another factor is the fact that this, like you said earlier, that this all took place before true crime was such a big deal. I mean, it was a it was a big deal. It was still kind of a little bit underground, you know. But people allowed uh, the filmmakers into the courtroom, you know. There's and which, in lawyer meetings and lawyer insane. meetings, and they were they were given access. I mean, they got access to the families of the victims, and you know, they interviewed these guys in prison while they were on trial. You know, things that would probably not happen these days. But the uh, another thing we should do is we should drop a name here, um, Sheila Nevins from HBO. It was actually her. Yeah. I think you know, talking to Joe and Bruce about it, they were they basically said she called up and said, yeah. "Go here and film this," because she sensed a story. I think her maybe her idea was that it was about three teenagers who murdered three little boys, but she felt like there was something worth sending a, a really good couple of uh, documentary filmmakers and their crew out there to film this in West Memphis, Arkansas. You know, like, they could have very well gotten yeah. there, and it could have been just this r- real obvious case of murder and not much of a documentary. But what they found was, you know, this case, which was a, a satanic panic, you know, it was a hyst- it was like an old-school hysteria over witches and things like that. It was a witch hunt. You know, that word gets thrown around a bit now uh, improperly, but this was actually a witch hunt. You know, some people have told me it's kind of like a witch hunt. I'm like, no, it was a witch hunt. They used the word witch. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what they thought. Witches and Satanists were all the same thing. Um, Going going back to that, just, you know, thinking in time, the context of that film there, you said there wasn't a lot of true crime docs. I mean, I can think of just, they that that movie I think of some Errol Morris films like yeah. Thin yeah. Blue Line. Thin Blue Line is very similar. You know, and those are just so so like shocking to watch movies that it's a real story and the twists and turns are just stranger than you could you would see in a fiction film like a scripted show. 
So that's so the fact that there were a lot of twists and turns in this, and you're watching it as it happened, made this film stand out, and con- why I consider it like a classic of its of the genre, and why they had to make two more because the story, as you said, Burke, was just really beginning. Yeah, you know? and the and you mentioned yeah. the two other the sequels. A lot of true crime documentaries don't get sequels, but this one really screamed out for one after the ending of the first one. So many people were like, what the hell? You know, how can this happen? And so, you know, we we contacted Joe and Bruce, too, after the first one, when we were trying to get in touch with everyone we could. Mm -hmm. And we started a website back um, when the web was still kind of new for things Mm -hmm. like that. I think we had one of the very first and... For yeah. a while, the biggest uh, true crime website on the internet. Yeah. And we used to do, uh, we had, had chat rooms, and we'd have 5,000 people waiting in to get in these chat rooms. And yeah. we had... That's um, amazing. Yeah. And because we, people felt the same way we did. It was worldwide that people wanted more information because you feel like there's not enough information in the films because there's not enough information in the case. So it kind of created its own, like, this, yeah. this craving for, like more information because what we have is we have a crime that happened we don't know where it happened we don't know what happened and we don't know when it happened like literally all why it's like what when why where none of the information in this case ever ever described anything about this case like no one has a scenario and we don't even know where where it happened the bodies were found somewhere but it didn't happen there so the whole thing is a big question mark it still is (laughs) And just the fact know. that when they, the moment they found the bodies, they immediately assumed that it was these, you know, these guys that they called devil worshippers who listened to this heavy metal music and read books by this horrible satanic author named Stephen King and, you know, checked out books from the library about religion. And, you know, one of the things that the investigators did was they went and got the list of books that Damien had checked out from the library or bought from the library book sales. And it was this long list of books, and a lot of them were about Catholicism and religion and, you know, things like that. And he was fascinated by, you know, world religions. He still is. And and um, they used that as evidence that he was evil in the in the courtroom. And I remember thinking... You're, you're, you, a kid who went to the library and checked out books and was learning about things, learning about the world, learning about religion and things like that. And you're condemning him for that. I mean, it should, the opposite yeah. should be happening. This is not something to condemn a, a teenager for going to the library, you know? And that kind of thing just sticks right out, you know. And the fact that when they found the bodies, one of the people who was present was a juvenile, you know, the juvenile uh, truant officer, basically, who said, well, it looks like they did it. You know, and he named them. He said, it looks like Damien finally killed someone. And so from that point on, he was their focus. They didn't focus. I mean, it was like, a, you know, one of those things that's kind of clever and fun when you see it in a TV series when the cop is so good and so experience that he has this hunch, you know, I know who did it and I can tell by looking in his eyes. And people like those kind of characters because you know, they're they're fun because they're almost like superheroes, but in real life hunches don't always play out, you know. These guys thought immediately their hunch was that it was Damien who did this. And that's all they followed. They didn't follow any other leads. Well, the- the investigation kind of ended there. I it mean, did. you know, yeah. early on, there was no chance of getting real evidence because they really didn't go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, they I, did interview some they, people, and they looked around here and there, but they didn't apply any effort to any of that other stuff. What they were, what they were basically doing was trying to gather evidence against Damien, and they were trying to create that evidence by saying, oh, we found this, it must have been Damien's. You know, like they find a knife in a giant lake surrounded by, a, you know, 100 homes, and they're like, oh, well, this knife that we found must have been the knife that they used, even though there was no measurements or forensics or anything like that. You know, it was that kind of an investigation, something that you would see in a bad TV show. <laughs> right. So well, how, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, Kathy, you go. <laughs> no, you go. <laughs> no, I was going to say how moving forward to like, how did you, how did the second film come about? And did the filmmakers contact you? And how did that all happen? Because I remember I was sort of involved. I, I was watching out and saying, oh, you know, you guys are kind of involved in the second film. Well, I think first, I don't think anyone, I I would never expect a documentary to have a sequel. I mean, not many did, especially then. So all of this advocacy that we were doing by creating this West, free the West Memphis 3.org um, group was we just really wanted to change people's minds about what happened. And fortunately, well, we, we had this documentary. I think we wanted people to change their own minds after they set, saw what we had seen. I mean, we tried really hard to keep our our opinions out of it. I mean, we offered our opinions, but we always said, this is my opinion. But the thing is, the idea of collecting all of this data and putting it on a website so anyone can go there and click through and read for themselves. Well, and that's that was part of it. It's like the more information you get, the more you come to believe they're innocent because right. the evidence didn't connect them. So we also – there's also the the – the driving, you know, curiosity and interest in wanting the crime to be solved. I mean, it's three little kids were murdered and they were, it's an incredibly rare occurrence when three kids from three different families are murdered together. And that, that inspired, that created some interest in the criminal profiler that ultimately, you know, came into the case. And, um, that, that alone was, you know, so unusual that there wasn't really anything for, for the, anyone to look at as a way to investigate this case, because right. usually it's like, Kids are killed. Parents or someone near the kid did it because they're high risk victims. They're, they're just you know they're missed very quickly. You know, <laughs> so yeah. I think part of it was so we want to know what the fuck happened. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to is like what happened. We still could yeah. not figure out in our minds. We couldn't visualize what even happened during the crime. We don't really know. And the it's hard to even tell how they died. The frustrating thing too, like what you just said, is that it's usually when there's children who are murdered, usually it's someone close to them. You know, it's very rarely a, a stranger, especially when there's three kids together who, from three different homes, found in similar situation in a in the same place. You know, it seems like how, it's either a, I mean, it's either a serial killer who's done that kind of thing before over and over or something, or it might have been someone, I mean, an investigate a real investigation would have investigated the parents. And we kept hearing things like, no, 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 we didn't investigate the parents out of respect, you know. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful, and they're they're already going through such a horrible thing, so we didn't go look in their homes or look around their houses. They didn't check any, they didn't question any of the parents about, you know, anything other than, you know, a few cursory things. But it was like they, they just stepped away from the parents of the victims, hmm. whereas a real investigation would have... Th- thought, you know, we got to go there first. I know it's not easy, but we got to go there first and we got to rule them out. Ralph Anderson did it in The Outsider. That wasn't easy yeah. for him. 
Sorry. That's right. <laughs> thank, thank you for some humor. <laughs> We're getting very caught up. So, Mark, when you when, okay, so you, so basically, what happened? I'm going to ask your opinions about some of the the movies too is that so basically we were doing a lot of stuff in the background and you know trying to you know generate interest in the case and promoting their film and so they ultimately they were so intrigued by the idea that their film has created this movement which it was becoming very big and prominent at that point that they wanted to investigate that aspect of the case the idea that like how is this changing the case how the film changed perspectives on the case how advocacy was changing opinions about the the men's innocence or guilt um so they decided they wanted to do an update on the case. So they were doing a sequel to the case, which is, like I said, is, is almost unheard of. <laughs> there aren't too many documentaries that have sequels. So that's what Paradise Lost 2 is. It basically caught up with, you know, John Mark Byers now. It caught up with, you know, what was happening to the men in prison because the movie ends basically, the first movie ended when they were convicted, basically. Um, there's a little bit of post interviews of them after they've been in prison a while, but it had been a couple of years. So they caught up with them while they're in prison, what their experiences were and how they felt about the advocacy. Um, and basically that's what the second movie is about. And there well, were two the goal- factions that happened too. There were people who, who, you know, people that aligned with us who thought they were, you know, they watched the film, got the same impression we did. They read through the, the evidence, the transcripts, the trial transcripts, and they looked carefully at the case and they concluded, you know, there's not enough evidence here to convict these guys, you know, it just is not convincing. I mean, if you don't buy into that hysterical, supernatural, you know, devil worshiper stuff, then you have to admit that there wasn't enough evidence against these guys. And, but then on the other hand, there were people who said they are guilty and, and their reasons were always like, well, just look at them. They look evil. Look in their eyes. It was all these hunch things again, like from or a TV three juries show. found them guilty. Like it's always this like, well, three juries, they couldn't be wrong. It's like, well, they can be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the three juries of, of people that were carefully chosen by the prosecutor to look in their eyes and see evil, you know, I mean, the prosecutor was using using things like that in his in his closing statements where he's telling the jury look into his eyes there's no soul in there he's got no soul you know thing supernatural stuff like that it's like you can't look into a person's eyes and see that there's no soul and find useful information about a person's soul that can be well, used <laughs> as in a in a court of law in America in the in the well, year the, in the 90s you know the prosecution wasn't about it wasn't about facts. This case was about emotions, yeah, and, and fear, uh, you know, and, and fear. Yeah. It was not about facts at all, and that's obvious from that first movie. Yeah, and in the second second movie, it's about sort of just about the global, you know, every you know. You say there's two factions, Burke. Yes, but I, I definitely you know on your side and our side. Uh, I, it was just amazing. I mean, there's that one scene, I think, in the second movie, and I was here for that. I was visiting L.A. when I was living in uh, back east when they were putting all the post- postcards together and the big, oh, yeah, sort, yeah. Of bill- <laughs> big sort of t- yeah. billboard or something that they would uh, you know, take to Arkansas with them. And I was just like, I was blown away by, my God, you guys have started this movement and it just turned <laughs> into this. I mean, it's true. That website started that, you know, you were sort of like you coalesced all these people that had the same feelings you did, saying these these three boys were wronged and they should be out of prison. It was a hub of where people could go when they if they felt the way we did. They watched the documentary and they felt like, what the hell? And they get on the Internet and look it up and they would find us. You know, they'd find the information. And I think it was because of that that we heard from Joe and Bruce, the filmmakers from HBO who made the first film. They contacted us and said you know, 
there really wasn't, in the first film, there really wasn't a voice of reason. It seems almost like everybody you were hearing from was just railing about this thing, about devil worshipers and Satan and, you know, God and Satan and all this stuff. And they felt like our, that we had sort of brought it down a little bit to reality and and made it like, you know what, get past all the hysteria and look at the facts, look at what really happened. And try to look past the hysteria, and they wanted us to be in the second film to represent that point of view, you know? <laughs> and we were very reluctant. We actually didn't want to do it. We didn't want to do it at first because we were like, I don't want to make this about us. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want anybody to know, to know me, you know what I know who I am or anything. But yeah. then we talked about it so much before we decided to do it. And it became this thing like, you know what, if we don't do it, they're not going to have that voice of reason. It's it's all going to be these people talking about evil and look in their eyes and they got no soul and you know they're devil worshippers and they're possessed by demons and they're using blood to get power and all this stuff. That, <laughs> you know, and, and we were like, you know what? We're not going to be that. We're not going to be those. So we should actually yeah. be in the film. We should we should just you know swallow our fear and our pride and whatever else and just go ahead and get out there. And what it also changed is that because of the first film and all the access that they had, because I think, you know, the police trusted Joe and Bruce, the, um, the judge trusted Joe and Bruce. And so they, I think they felt a little betrayed that they didn't come off looking so good in the first film because, you know, cause they are basically wrong. Right. Um, so they didn't, they weren't again, they weren't allowed in the courtroom the second time around. So they yes. wanted us to be there to, uh, mm-hmm. describe what's going on in the courtroom, you know, give the updates on the case because they had no way of showing that outside of, you know, like us. So we became like the narrator voice of the hearings that we had been going to and they were covering some of those hearings. So that's how they get information about that. How, yeah. how did it feel to be sort of the, you know, such a pivotal characters in this second film or in the story? I mean, like you were all of a sudden thrown into this maelstrom, you know, and I, and you probably didn't want that, but you said you had to do it. I mean, how, what was your personal feelings, you know, going through that? Not well, not the not the whole idea of this, what you're doing there, but just personally, your lives. How did you know? How did it affect you? You know, your daily activities, and was it a positive know, thing for you? You know, well, what was interesting is that you know when you're in the moment doing it, we were just doing what we did. We we would go to hearings, we would put information on the website, we would do updates, we would, you know, promote the case online, we would do as much as we could to get attention toward the case. And so when we're actually, you know, being filmed for the documentary, it didn't really feel that different from what we were doing day to day anyway. It didn't feel like a maelstrom, it didn't feel crazy. We would have been in Arkansas anyway, we just now were talking to uh, a camera telling them our thoughts that we would be talking to each other about anyway. So when you're in that, it doesn't feel that different until later when you look at it and you go, whoa, (laughs) there we are. When the film comes out and you're sitting in a big theater full of people and there is your face, gigantic up on a screen, your voice, your face, your opinions (laughs) (laughs) on a giant theater screen in front of all these people in a theater. And you just don't know how I, I, you know, we all worry. We're so worried. Like, how are people going to, you know, interpret us? Are we going to be crazy? Are we going to be these crazy Hollywood, you know, people, these nutcase lunatics coming out and putting our nose in the business of others and, you know, these deranged yeah. Hollywood types, you know, or are we going to come across as 
like sort of reluctant uh you know citizen activists that we were <laughs> i mean we were earnestly we really earnestly believed that they were innocent oh, and yeah. we really really wanted to find who really did this and we thought by proving their innocence that that was somehow in a way by virtue of that lead to the real killer which has still not happened so i you know earnestly honestly yeah. we just want to know who did well, this. We've... that's 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 driven this whole thing. And the fact that three kids got thrown in jail for something that has, is still just a complete, huge, massive mystery is just ridiculous. So that, that was the driving force. We were prepared to do just about anything we could, you know, anything that we felt was good. We did. uh, One thing that I think I'm kind of proud of is the fact that we would really, we were, we were, we tried very hard to be very careful with what we did and said, when we we made rules early on, we had a list of rules that you know we will never do this, we will never do that. Like we decided that no matter what the the families of the victims say about us or do to us or towards us or whatever threats they make or whatever they say, we were not going we were not going to retaliate or respond or put them down in any way. We were going to just let them have that opinion about us, and we did, you know, and. And I think they respected us for that because two out of three became friends. You know, we we became friends with, um, you know, Pam Hobbs and Mark Byers. Eventually, we're still we're still on good terms with them. You know, they eventually came around after all the hysteria died down and after all the that that dark cloud of of you know satanic panic and all the things that they had heard the prosecutors say and the police say and the judge say they started realizing, you know what, they're not being honest with us. They didn't try to solve the murder of our children. And I think they started, I mean, we started hearing from them slowly. I got a call from Pam, you know, and she just wanted to talk to me. And I thought she wanted to call me up and tell me I was going to hell, you know. (laughs) But she actually was, I mean, always very sweet to me, always very open and honest with me. And I could tell that she just wanted to know, I mean, it was her son, I can't even imagine how yeah. what she went through and what that must have felt like for her. And then to have the the courage to call me up, you know, this guy who was advocating, you know, for the people that everybody thought had murdered her child. She she had the strength, and that is strength, to call me up and want to talk to me about it and to find out why I felt the way I felt. I had a lot of respect for Pam. I still do. <clears throat> That must have been very gratifying for both of you, like to have those people come around and say, you know, hey, I, I appreciate, you know, what you're doing. I understand it. And, um, you know, it was I, I mean, I'm, I don't know if it was gratifying as much as it was like, oh, finally, you, you know, it's once it once it kind of once everything sort of cooled down a little bit and people could see more clearly, there's a lot of, you know, when they say the dust settled you really get a sense of, I understand what that means when the dust settles, you know, you can see more clearly. <laughs> and yeah. I think a lot of people just, once that dust settled, they started stepping back a little bit and saying, you know what, they they are right about that. They're, they're, they didn't do enough investigation. And, you know, at the time, I think it was comforting for a lot of people to feel like, oh, the bad guys got caught. They caught the bad guys, and the bad guys are going to jail. I think, and, too, that... It's painful for families to want to have to revisit yes. a horribly painful case. If it's not over and they thought it was over, 
that means they have to keep thinking about and wondering what sure. happened to their kids. And right. the other kind of thing that um, that was kind of uh, revealing itself as we went along is that the initial impressions of the evidence of the case, what happened to the case, even you know injuries, uh, the method of you know death, whatever that that kept changing. So there kept we kept taking these left turns in the case. Like everyone who watches the first film is convinced that Mark Byers is the, is the killer. Right. Then they see the second film and nobody's really too sure anymore. You know, they're like, well, maybe. And then information about the case is changing. And it wasn't a satanic ritual murder with emasculating injuries. It was, you know, it was something else. And then by the third documentary, at this point, there's uh, some money coming from benefactors allowing uh, money to be spent on the investigation again. So this is all revealed in the Paradise Lost, the third film in the series. Um, that the the injuries and the crime itself was completely misrepresented in the first film. That it was basically they drowned, they were you know killed somewhere else. It looked like you know they they done some you know stomping on the back of their heads, horrible, mm, yeah, horrible method. Um, but that there were no actual injuries. It was all uh, animal predation post mortem. That was the kind of stuff. The post mortem injuries were one of the main reasons the three were convicted. So right. now you're like, well, if that didn't happen, so, <laughs> and then at that point, even Byers was convinced of um, Damien Eccles being innocent. Yeah. Then the, everyone's turning their attention to Terry Hobbs, who was basically given a free ride in the first two movies because he's barely present in the first two films. And, you know, th- still the same situation of people, you know, casting all these accu- accusations against someone where there is no proof. Um, so I still, you know, I don't, I don't see anything convincing me that Terry Hobbs did anything. Yeah, me neither. Uh, and he's, you know, not necessarily this great guy. I mean, he has some problems, but I don't, you know, at this point, uh, he's still innocent to me. And yeah, I mean, so it, like I'm not going to throw out any accusations against Terry Hobbs um, at this point either, because yeah. I regret any of the accusations we might have made against Byers. Because, you know, he he just drew so much attention to himself in the first two films that you almost couldn't avoid him. But that was another and, thing we agreed on was that we weren't going to ever point a finger. And there's a there's a part in the first in the second film, I mean, where they where someone asks me, like one of the reporters asked me, do you think Mark Byers did it? You know, because that was what everybody was saying. And I, I said, I'm not we're not here to point a finger at anyone. And at that point, we didn't really think that Mark Byers did. We used to talk about it. Of course, we speculated in our in the privacy of, you know, our just in our little private circle. But, you know, and publicly, we didn't ever point at Mark Byers and say we thought Mark Byers did it. Well, he was just by virtue of being a, a, a person who was close to all the victims. Right. You know, what the police should have done is investigated that. Yeah, they uh, should have ruled him out. Because absence of proof is not not proof of absence um so basically you know just because he was close to the victims doesn't mean he did it even if he was capable it still doesn't mean he did it if he acts suspicious it still doesn't mean he did it so yeah there were a lot of um like miscues on people because you want a killer to be found right so paradise lost to revelations basically uh covers the advocacy of the case, the the men in prison as the case stands now, more uh, more talk with other lawyers that were new lawyers on the case. Uh, they kind of followed us around to, to show like what we were doing to advocate for the the innocence of these men. And then part three, they decided to do a part three because they wanted to have a more conclusive like overall view of the case. So part three is almost like its own freestanding documentary. It starts in the beginning, and then you know as a you know looking back at the case. 
And then they do a whole update on the case leading up to the ultimate release of the men from prison and how that came about, which, which was kind of pretty a bonus. stunning. I mean, they didn't expect, I yeah. think when they started making the film, they didn't know they were going to get released, you know, cause they no, were filming they it for a long it. time. Yeah. They actually finished the film. It was going to premiere at the Toronto film festival. And then all of a sudden this, it literally came out of nowhere. We get this phone call. You need to come to Arkansas. And that's right, when the, the whole last album <laughs> Right, so the filmmakers actually had to do re-edit the film after that, again, for the actual full release of the film. So all of this stuff was really, the thing that really makes these movies stand out is how they're, they were reacting to things as they happened in real time. Yeah. And that's just unheard of. So that's what makes them so special. So you're getting to see this stuff happening as, it, as, it, as you see it. Instead of looking back and trying to get people to remember, you're actually talking to people as they're doing it. <laughs> so. Yeah, because, I mean, most of the films that you see, most of the true crime documentaries that you see are f- filmmakers who decide to make a film about something that's already happened. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, the murders had already happened, of course, when they started making the film. But the trial and what became the story of this one, what really became the the meaty part of the story, isn't isn't just the murders, but the aftermath of the murders and and the injustice right. that happened not only to the three victims, but to the three victims of the the trial that you know the quote trial that they had, and the whole story became the story. And what we always kept saying back when we were really involved in this thing is we kept saying, this is the story that just never stops. Because it seemed like constantly we were getting something new was coming up about this. For you know, for years, there was some new thing that was happening, and it just, it, it just kept going and going. We could never, we could never run away from it. <laughs> and it kept changing. I mean, you'd yeah. never... The the minute you think you understand what's happening, it takes a left turn. And then every time someone asks you about the case or wants to know information, you can never ask answer it simply. You have to come up with five different answers that all go down their own you know rabbit hole. And so anytime someone says, "Well, who do you think did it?" You're like, "Oh, oh my yeah. God! Do you have like three hours for me to talk about like how we don't know and why we don't know?" And you know, it's it's crazy. But I mean, really, I mean, so much credit has to go to Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky yeah. because they they managed to take this incredibly complicated case and boil it down to be really simply told, easy to understand, very emotional. I mean, you get a really good look at you know the the political and the socioeconomic you know society of how poor people are treated by law enforcement, yeah. how, you know, they're not taken quite as seriously. And, you know, it's like, it's this sort whole, like, I mean, I was seeing a side of life that was just stunning to me. So, you know, just seeing that carried along through all the years that happened is, is amazing. And a lot of it is if you're poor and you go to jail, that's it for you. You're yeah. done. I mean, you're not yep. O.J. Simpson. You're not going to get off the hook. You can't, you know, buy your way out of it. You know, these kids just had their appointed lawyers, and then that was it. And they got put in jail, and that was it. Well, they had no one advocating for the them. The thing, too, is during all this, we spent a lot of time visiting prisons in Arkansas. We visited a lot of prisons in Arkansas, and we got to really know Damien, Jason, and Jesse over those years. But one th- one th- other thing that we got to know was the prison system in Arkansas. And, I mean, it's obvious to say this. Everybody knows this. But people don't really rarely – people rarely say it out loud. But when you go visit a prison, you're walking through there and you're seeing all these prisoners around you. 
they're all poor people. There's no all poor people. There's no good looking, you know, fancy, you know, wealthy upper crust types in there. You know, they're not there. They don't go they're there. there. They're not there. No. And ultimately, you know, they the three of the you know Jesse and Damien and and Jason were really fortunate that Joe and Bruce discovered their case because by virtue of that they got lawyers that were able to work on their case that they would never be able to afford otherwise. Yeah. You know, so they finally got some really good lawyer on the case, and so. And that changed too. That kept evolving. They got different lawyers as it went along, and they got you know really esteemed experts on the case who know how to analyze evidence or you know lack of evidence. Um, so by you know tons of money pouring in, look what look what happens. They get yeah. out. I and think you know you just got to have it. The, 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 yeah, there was so much pressure on the state of Arkansas to yeah. do the right thing. I mean, I can't count the times of you know people we told people to write to you know Mike Huckabee who did nothing, um, and call and leave messages. So many people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people calling and asking him to do something. He just said, oh, we can't do anything. Not only did Mike Huckabee, who was the governor of Arkansas at that point, not only did he do nothing, he lied. I mean, he flat out lied to people who who tried to contact his office to get information about this case. He, you know, they had an official response to people who would call in about the case, and it was a lie. I mean, and and you know that they knew it was a lie. They just wanted to, you know, hide it. They wanted to make people shut up about it. I'm yeah. so shocked that he lied. Yeah, I mean, that's shocking. You, yeah. I know, politician. Don't yeah. listen to politicians, people. Wow. Um, so, and also, you know, Joe Joe Bowen has done so many fantastic documentaries in his career. Yeah. I mean, he he did the most recent. We've covered it uh, in a episode or two, including an interview with Joe, which you know you should take you know a listen to because he also talks about this West Memphis three case and his documentaries about it. Um, he did the recent Ted Bundy documentary and film. Um, so he's done a lot of you know incredible work. And a lot of it is crime oriented or scandal oriented. And, and anytime I feel like I see a Joe Burns movie, I feel like I'm getting a really smart point of view on what's going to happen. And I feel like he's a trustworthy filmmaker. Um, so that's definitely worth it. Once you see Paradise Lost movies, you should then move on to his other films because they're also just as compelling. Yeah, it's a great it's a, time to watch his films. Yes, yeah. now's the time. <laughs> If you haven't seen the Paradise Lost trilogy, I mean, you should. You have the time now to do it. Watch it. And the, the other Berlinger films, you know, Brothers Keeper and then every, everything else, the Bundy films, uh, the Armenian Genocide film, all of them f- incredibly interesting. And the Whitey Bulger yeah. one is pretty intense, too. Yeah. But, yeah, the thing about these these films is, like like Kathy was saying, the fact that that you feel like you're watching it as it's unfolding with no – there's no reenactments or anything like that. And it is – they are a document of a time that I don't think could really happen anymore with the true crime documentary. I don't think courtroom. I mean, like you said, the the um, the judge and the attorneys and the families and all that allowed the filmmakers into their closed quarters. You know, allowed them to get closed because they really didn't know what the angle of the film was going to be. And then when the film came out, they felt you know, like you said, they felt a little betrayed by the truth being told about them. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I think a lot of times now, you know, because of these films, maybe, or films like this, uh, people in situations like that are probably advised, you know, do not let filmmakers know we cannot let filmmakers into the courtroom. Do not let them interview you because they're going to make you, you know, into the bad guy or whatever, or they're going to, 
you know, they're going to tell the truth and you better be careful what you say. <laughs> yeah. Well, lastly, I mean, I would say this is like 25 years since that film came out. <laughs> oh, God. Could you imagine? Insane. I mean, that, and that is, this case has been a part of your lives for almost that as long as that i always or tell people to watch these films and you can you can watch my if you fast forward them you can watch my hair fall out oh stop it <laughs> you can watch me go bald <laughs> oh my god but you know that's that's one reason to watch yes um but uh but I think, you know, part of it is, you, you know, we were learning as we went along. I mean, Burke was a writer. I was, you know, in entertainment marketing. You know, Grove was a photographer. Lisa ran her own, you know, music company. So we had this, you know, marketing um, background that we could bring to this to help, you know, finesse the message for what we wanted to say about this case. Um but basically, you know, we were just learning as we went along. You know, we didn't know how to build websites. We started to learn. We had someone help us with that. You know, we didn't know about – there was no such thing as social media. We were, you know, just winging it, you know, trying stuff on news groups online. And that, you know, those are all private groups, you know. Um, but right now, you know, with all the crowdfunding and all – we were basically doing all these things without knowing it. Um, doing crowdfunding, trying to think of, you know, people were throwing benefits, you know, kids were doing, you know, in classrooms were, you know, having bake sales and sending us, you know, $20 to send toward Lori to help with the uh, defense fund. It's like, there were so many um, amazing people just around the world in their small way, whatever they could do to help with this case. And I think that kind of care and that kind of emotion toward people they didn't even know that maybe not even in their own country, that was really inspiring to us. And it it made you feel like, you know, we should keep going. You know, we gotta, we gotta, you know, we gotta make this, you know, get these guys out to just, just by virtue of all the support behind them. (laughs) It's like, we had to do it. So I, you know, I don't know, if uh, nowadays it, it's there's the the atmosphere is so cluttered with people who have advocacy sites or crowdfunding or crowdsourcing or you know I don't even know how you'd break out like we we were just kind of like in a way blazing the trail but I don't even know how we could even do it now without just falling into those templates yeah we were basically making our absorbed. own template they're being yeah. we never into done advocacy before. Things. Yeah, we'd never done this. We're not legal experts. We're not lawyers. We we just saw something wrong, and we wanted to say something about it. And you know, people would write to us and say, "I want to do a benefit. Is that okay?" And I'm like, "Of course it's okay." Or people do would it. write to us yeah. and say, "What should I do?" And I'm like, "You tell me. Tell me if you come do up with an idea." But here's another thing yeah. we have to say: is a lot of people used to call us like that and say, you know, they would come to us as the authority. I remember one time when we were in Arkansas for the hearings, and we decided to go to, you know, the people that were really into the case, we decided to just take a road trip and go from Jonesboro to West Memphis to the site where the bodies were found. And it took a group of people. It was like a you know a couple of vans of people. And, you know, we knew where it was, so we kind of headed the, you know, the drive, and we got there, and everybody, you know, we had a little group of us walked in there, and I, I just found myself kind of, because nobody knew, I, I'd been there a few times, and I just sort of pointed out a couple of things, and there's this group of people, and I'll always remember one of the people raised their hand, <laughs> like like I was a tour guide, and I was like, you don't have to raise your hand, <laughs> just, uh, you know, just talk, you know. But I think a lot of people saw us as sort of like the authorities on the case, and we were a little bit wary of that label. 
And we also, one of the things I have to say is that it wasn't just us. We had so many people helping us. You know, there were, you know, there was me, Kathy, Grove, Lisa were the ones that people kind of felt like were the spearheads of the website and, and the, the uh, Free the West Memphis Three effort. But there were so many people that we had helping us, you know? There were people who were doing work, you know, almost like a day job helping there us. Were, we had one woman named Al who would basically sift through the thousands of yeah. emails that would come in. And, you know, she would she would forward the ones that, you know, required you know us to personally be involved in them. And a lot of it was just, you know, reassuring people that we were working on the case. That was m- most of it was. Then there were people who actually lived in Arkansas who would go down to the police station and they would Xerox copies and scan copies of documents that we then upload to the site. Then there was uh, another person who had kind of a, a, a joining site where he basically had a, a whole archive of information also that we would link to, yeah. Jive Puppy. Yeah. And let alone like people who I feel like even knew more than we did about the case who I would go to for information because they had studied and studied and studied the case over and over. It's like, you know, the, the classic web sleuthers that we, you know, is common now, but we're brand new then. Yeah. <laughs> no one knew what they were doing. This was all like just happening on its own very naturally. And yeah. like it sort of snowballed into this huge movement. And we'd hear like, you know, uh, comments about people paying attention to it, whether it was like, you know, Trey Parker saying, West Lament, you know, Free the West Memphis Three on an award show, or a character on a, a TV show saying, you know, Free the West Memphis Three. Like, it was weird to see that stuff pop up in, pop, you know, in popular culture. And it was just sort of happening organically on its own. And I remember the, the well, T-shirt, you know, the Free the West Memphis Three T-shirt. I, I, I designed it. I, I, you know, I have to take credit. I designed that shirt. <laughs> And it's not really a design. I just sort of stuck the pictures, and I did it really quickly because I didn't think anybody. I didn't think anybody was going to buy it really. But then we started seeing famous people wearing them, like Axl Rose wearing it on stage, and you know Henry Rollins, and yeah, Will Ferrell, and and you know the celebrity interest was nice and all, but the main I think what that really helped was expand exposure of the case and. And help bring in more money to help pay for more experts that we could never afford because this was never a big money venture. No. I mean, we basically just helped, you know, we were sending everything we had to either the defense fund or just paying for, you know, web servers. You know, it was like it was not a, a money thing at all. It was it was just basically like you, you felt like you couldn't just walk away from this case anymore. We knew these guys. They were our friends. Now we had to get help get them out. We just had to. Yeah, you couldn't, well, you couldn't just walk away from it. Yeah, well, it's very inspiring the whole thing. And as you said, it's the case that doesn't die. The fact that you know you're going to be on murder, the Murder Squad podcast coming okay. soon. Do you have a date for that, or do you have any idea? When we don't have the date yet, um, and uh, but we'll be sure to let you know on our social medias when that's going to happen. And the uh, the West Memphis Three and ID Murder Mystery that's premiering soon in April. Correct. I think, right? Yep. Yep. Like. It says, all, so all it, I know is April, so this month. That's coming point. out Sunday, April 9th. Oh. I might be making that up. Four or five, six. It starts, it's on the four or five, the six, April 6th, Sunday. It's going to be out. By the time you hear this podcast, it's out. Oh, so okay. you need to find a Discovery ID, and then we'll be covering that documentary, too, on, after we we've seen it and we'll talk about it with you guys. It'll probably be the next week after you listen to this podcast, you'll hear so, more about the West Side Mystery. So from our point on the, in the uh, time continuum right now, we are today is April 4th. So tomorrow, today is Saturday. So tomorrow oh, is Sunday. So it's the fifth, right? April 5th. 
Sunday? Yes. April 5th, yes. Yeah, so okay. coming, you know, so uh, you'll get to watch that and uh, we'll talk about it some more. I mean, I think the whole thing coming as an outsider who was not involved like you two were, it's very inspiring. You don't see it that way. I mean, maybe you do, but sort of a pioneering what you did and helping those three innocent men get out and because they were young, they're teenagers, now they're men. It's inspiring stuff. Well, we were, but, you know, ultimately what we really want to do is we really – I'm really hoping one of these days that, you know, we'll find who murdered is Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, Michael Michael Moore. It's like those are the three victims. I want to make sure we say their names because they often get lost in all the shuffle of everything else. Um, we just want their killer to be found. I mean, if it comes down to that. It's like somebody killed these kids and they fucking got away with it. That that yeah. can't be. That can't let stand. You know. So I'm hoping that some genius out there, someone who knows something, is going to hear one of these podcasts. They could hear Murder Squad. They could see this documentary. That someone's going to know something and we're going to find out because that's ultimately the ultimate ultimate thing that we want is for the real guy to get get theirs. I yeah. hope so. I hope so. Well, thanks for talking about it. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for you know rehashing that stuff and uh, going back because it's it's fascinating. I know for you it's like oh you know we'll talk about this again, but to yeah. people out there it's um it's great to hear it. It's hard to yeah. go back into it. It's hard started. to go back into yeah. that. There's a lot we're leaving out. There's oh, a lot. Yeah. Of oh sure, but, I'm sure. There, like I said, you can't talk about this case without spending hours. So this is our attempt at being brief about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, if you're interested, watch. Uh, start with the three films, and yeah. then there's so much to so much to read about. It's out there, so um, you can you can do that yourself and, and spend hours yeah. yourself uh, l- looking into it. Yeah. And we'll check. I mean, normally we on the on the podcast we talk about fun things like movies we like, and we're laughing and joking and stuff. But this is a serious thing that we felt like was was. Uh, enough of a of a cinemondo idea it's a film you know we were talking about the films that that were made about this case but um we'll be checking the the um the hits that we get for this one the the whatever you know if hopefully you can go in there and write some comments about this one and if this episode where we talk about the west memphis three stuff and the paradise lost films gets any kind of attention from our listeners and comments and things like that, and you know, however many listens it get, we might be encouraged to do another episode about it because, like Kathy just said, we haven't even scratched the surface. We have such stories to tell you. Yes, <laughs> goes, might have to do a whole podcast about it. Yeah, I know a few, and they are juicy. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. They, they truly are. I mean, they really yeah, are. It's, Crazy it's times. Yeah. yeah, so we'll wet your whistle on that. But thanks so much talking about it. I appreciate yeah, sure. it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I was, it was fun for me to listen to it. <laughs> Again. <laughs> it's so much fun. That's one of the things that if you're if you're a friend of one of ours, you've heard this ad nauseum. Way you've too heard much. Way too much of it. And we apologize. Yeah. Open apology to all of our friends. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, this case does not suffer from, you know, a lack of interest. It's you know, it's got Podcast. Other pod people have covered it on their podcast. Murder yeah. Squad's going to be covering it. You know, Discovery's covering it. HBO's. Just, I mean, it's been all over the place. So, yeah. but if there's any questions people have, you know, about our experiences or anything we might know, we may or may not know, um, just let us know. Yeah, you can reach us on Instagram and of course uh, Twitter at Cinemondo hashtag Cinemondo Pod. We have a Facebook page. Easy to find us or cinevandopodcast.com. You can uh, get in touch with us there. So plenty of options. Follow us on Patreon at Cinemando Podcast and all streaming services. 
So wow, Mark, that sounded yeah. like uh, our announcer Johnny. <laughs> that was me doing my Dom Pardo. Oh. <laughs> very, very impressive. <laughs> Just from your memory, too, right? Just right out of your memory. Very nice. But exactly. But um, well, that's it, right? Anything else to add before we sign off? I think that's about it for this one, but that's you know, about they, it? but just you know, check out the check out those Paradise Lost films. If you like true crime, that is a a doorway into a story that you will never forget. It'll blow you away. Seriously, yeah. just watch those films. It will. It will. Great. All right. Well, this was fun. All right. All Thanks right. you all for listening. Bye. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. Cinemondo. <laughs> this is Cinemondo signing off. 